Uh, today, I get the, the privilege to kick off our next sermon series here at Sherwood Oaks uh, called Family Vacation, which will look at some of the significant locations uh, in the Bible. I asked Tom, uh, as in preparation for this, to kind of get an idea of what he was thinking with the series, and he gave me a little soundbite here I'll share with you as far as what the, the intention of the series is. Um, Summer and family vacations just go together. There's no mention of vacations in the Bible, although families traveled to Jerusalem between major Jewish holidays, which would have involved a good bit of travel for most. So if you wanted to get away for an extended trip in Judea, where might you go? And we're gonna do some speculating on some of the great vacation spots of the Bible and some famous events that took place in those regions. So let's pack our bags, load up the family donkey, and head out on vacation. So there's your soundbite for Tom for the morning. Um, so in uh, uh, just full transparency confession, uh, I got the, the heads up when the working title for the series was just on location, not necessarily summer vacation. So I'm gonna set the bar pretty low here this morning as far as uh, family-friendly destinations. All right, so if nothing else, maybe you gain a place that uh, you don't want to stop. Um, in fact, you probably would want to get your family and your donkey out of there as quick as possible. So we'll get to that here in a moment. Um, but as we jump in, um, you know, in, throughout history and in our culture, um, when a student completes a course of instruction, we usually have some, some type of ceremony gathered around for the end of that to signify the accomplishment called a graduation. Um, and so Jesus, he had students also, and we call them his disciples. And for much of the scriptures, much of the gospels, we see them referring to him as rabbi or teacher. And so while there was no official ceremony for the disciples, there was a unique moment in Jesus' time with them that signified um, near the, it was close to the end of his ministry and it signified a major shift that was coming in God's relationship with humanity. Uh, it had major implications for the disciples and what their future held and implications for us here today as well. Um, and it's in this moment that Jesus gives commencement-like words to his disciples, and that's what we're gonna um, discuss. And it happened all in a pagan city known as Caesarea Philippi. It's a city that was notorious for its evil. Now, we'll come back to that in a moment, but first I just wanna look at the text that Matthew records in his gospel that's happening here, and we find it in chapter 16. And so at this point, Jesus knew the disciples would follow him, but he was asking them about what they believed about him, what they truly believed. And so Matthew chapter 16 says this, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon answered, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is a, a significant, and in your text, in your Bible, it's probably labeled um, as Peter's confession or Jesus declares, I'm sorry, Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah uh, on the chapter heading. Um, the, uh, um, but this, this confession, the confession of Jesus being the Christ, the son of the living God, the, the confession we just saw some of our brothers and sisters over here make this morning, this is at the central part um, of a person's declaration and statement of faith in Jesus. And Peter made that, and here we are thousands of years later, and we still unify ourselves. We, we understand from the gospels, this is a unifying thing for us that, that brings us together in our common belief of who Jesus is 
and the place that he holds in our life. Messiah is king of our lives. Um, and in this famous dialogue in Matthew, um, there's been, it's, you know, this dialogue between Jesus and Peter that's been the source of many theological debates throughout the years about churches and leadership. But this morning, I just wanna focus on the location itself and how does this location inform us um, with this geographical setting and how we understand what Jesus was saying to Peter. So today, welcome to sunny Caesarea Philippi. It is uh, not a, a great vacation destination, as I said earlier, for family. It wouldn't make many uh, top five lists. Um, it was less like Disney, uh, more like the Jerry Springer show. Um, if you're familiar, which uh, I'm, I'm sure is still running, they probably never run out of material. Um, the, um, it, was, it was all of the worst that one could, could view and probably uh, celebrate when it comes to humanity, um, except even more primitive than today. Now, Caesarea Philippi actually sat about 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and that's kind of significant. If you look at a, a map, um, Jesus spends most of his, his life in the Galilee region, his ministry in the Galilee region, around the lake there, um, where his teachings and healings would occur. But if you look up north of the lake, Caesarea Philippi stands alo alone up there, 30 miles from where Jesus spent most uh, of, of his ministry at this point. And he, he, he goes there with his disciples here um, for the, our, our context for our, our scripture today. Um, now, in Caesarea Philippi, there is a massive rock, a cliff face, that was the center for centuries of pagan worship. And we're gonna get to that in, in a minute. Um, but prior to Jesus' day, that region way up north there was a region where the Canaanites uh, practiced Baal worship. And Baal worship involved child sacrifices and all of just the atro atrocities of some of the pagan worship practices of its day. In fact, we see a lot in the Old Testament, um, the, the prophets and, and everyone, uh, God telling Israel to avoid these practices of the pagan nations that were, were detestable. And so... Um, it, had a, it already had a long-standing history of, of the pagan worship there. And then in Jesus' day itself, at this time, the Greco-Roman world, Alexander the Great and his empire and the Roman Empire had kind of put their stamp on the world and Baal worship was pretty much wiped out. But in the Greek um, pantheon, there was a god named Pan. And Pan was depicted as half man, half goat. And Pan was now the new god that was worshiped at Caesarea Philippi. In fact, there's actually... Um, a temple built there. There was a temple for Caesar and at this cave and in this temple, all of this was gathered for the location of pan worship. There's the giant rock face. You see the massive cave that's covered up by the building on the left. And then all of these areas that were dedicated to the worship of pan. There's even been coins discovered from the area that archeologists have found that show depict pictures of both the temple and pan on them. And you can go there today and see the cave and the ruins of these temples, um, some of the aftermath of what is still there, as well as the niches that are carved into the rock wall, which would house the idols and the statues. You can still see the Greek inscriptions from the gods that were worshiped there. Um, and so there's also uh, signs around the place, if you went there on a tour, that talk about the nature of the acts of worship that went there. For our purposes this morning, we'll just simply say some of those acts of worship involved people and goats, and um, we'll go with air quotes on involved and leave it at that, and hopefully you don't have awkward conversations with, hopefully that didn't fall in the wrong ears. So, um, yeah, the, um, and so a lot of detestable things. And so this was a very, uh, again, very paganized culture and um, area where Jesus has taken the disciples. Um, 
But so my point though, from the ancient practices of Baal worship to the current in Jesus' day practices of uh, pan worship in the Greek fertility, uh, fertility gods, it was an area that was de- had a history of detestable acts. And, and finally, one thing you need to know about this space, in the rock face there that was covered up in the, in the picture there by the temple, um, you can go and see this today now that the temple is gone. Um, there was a cave and the cave was known in, in, that, in that pagan world to symbolize the abyss where the water came from as, as a gate or a door to the underworld. And this is the cave. If you went there today, you could actually, um, you can actually go up and see this. And again, they've got the signs and the things around the area. And so, um, but the, here the rock, at the rock of the gods, there, there's this cave where a spring, a spring of water would flow. And the pagans naturally thought that this is where the entrance for the demons, the evil spirits, the gods of the underworld, where they would travel to and from both the underworld and to the surface to our world. And so it was literally known as the gate of Hades. So that is Caesarea Philippi. Now, as we go back to our text and we think about Jesus, who is a Jewish rabbi, who is, has Jewish students, people, uh, the, the disciples who were trying to observe the Torah, observe the Hebrew scriptures and, and, um, and honor them and live faithfully to them. And Matthew, who's writing this gospel, who's collected this story where we read our text today, you know, Matthew has opened his gospel with this genealogy. He's trying to show how Jesus is the descendant, the promised descendant of David. He's trying to show how Jesus is the new Moses with the commands and the teachings he gives through the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew has an agenda, and his audience is a very uh, Torah-observant Jewish audience. And so when he talks about, um, then Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, this wouldn't be lost on them. Like, you know, for us today, we may not understand all the nuance of the Hebrew scripture and what being a Torah observant practicing Jew might be. Um, my son, for example, has had a friend over not too long ago who happens to be Jewish and he was gonna be going uh, to a synagogue on a Saturday night. And so he um, asked his friend if he could play and he's like, I can't, I've gotta be at synagogue Saturday night. And my son, Clyde said, you're Jewish? How come I've never seen you wear your fedora? And so... <laughs> There can be nuances sometimes. We may not have the full under, understanding there. There's probably some obscure passage about observing fedora wear in Leviticus. But um, we, we, we may not be clear on all of the things it requires to be a Torah observant Jew. But we, we do know this, that um, a devout Jew would avoid association um, and, and with these unclean practices and unclean places. So when Matthew goes in, Matthew chapter 16 says, Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. There's something going on here. So let's, let's go back to the text again and, and just re-examine it in light of what we know about this place where Jesus has his disciples. He says to, he says to them, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This signaled a turning point in human history. From here, Matthew goes on to tell us that Jesus would begin his way towards Jerusalem, where he knew eventually, ultimately, he would be killed. And that there's an era, Matthew's signaling here, of God's covenant with Israel that was transitioning, transitioning to a new covenant through Jesus for all humanity, not just the Jews in Jerusalem, but this world would reach this uh, 
but God's will would reach the darkest regions of the pagan world and ultimately fulfilling the, God, the promise that God had made to Abraham in Genesis that all nations would be blessed through this unfolding plan through Abraham and Israel and now Jesus. Jesus is, says that he is giving Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven and he knows that the disciples must begin to process what life is going to be without their rabbi there to physically follow and the disciples had spent a lot of time following, but Peter's confession now reveals now that they believed in him. And it's on that belief, that's what unifies us. And this is what we build our church on. And Jesus proclaims, I will build my ecclesia, my called out ones, my gathering on this the belief, people being unified around Jesus being king. Now, and then he, and he, what he makes a statement then about that church. And he says, the gates of Hades, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Imagine the disciples processing this and imagine them there in the backdrop of, of Caesarea Philippi and Jesus tells them on this rock, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And you think about the function of a gate, right? You don't see someone using a gate offensively. You can't attack someone with a gate. What is a gate? It's a defensive measure. It's set up to keep out anything that ultimately threatens. And in the presence of Jesus, hell itself is threatened. Jesus says that his church is gonna do something that hell itself will not be able to withstand. And so my encouragement and my challenge for us this morning is to, that we would embrace this part of God's story that we are called to join in, that we have the opportunity to join in the goodness of God's kingdom work here in this world. And the idea of God's people in Christ Invading hell may be a difficult thing to process, but that's often because we've settled for an understanding of heaven that's just something about the afterlife, that's just something about the next life. We're over and over in scripture, especially through the teachings of Jesus. It tells the story of how God's kingdom is as much a part of this life as it is the next. And so what I wanna do here is unpack a theme that runs from the, from the front of the Bible to the end, from Genesis through Revelation, that we, that we, often, um, we often sometimes can miss or we sometimes need clarity and understanding on. And so this resource I'm gonna use to show, I'm gonna do it through a video. Everyone likes to see a video when the main teacher's not here, right? So um, we're gonna show a real quick video and hopefully this will bring some insight and some clarity. It's a great resource from some people uh, uh, doing a project called the Bible Project. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here, there's trees, rivers, mountains, but my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die. But this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then 
partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right, so we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space 
to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. Jesus looks at his disciples and speaks into their future when he proclaims the power of his church right there with the backdrop of corruption and sin at Caesarea Philippi. And today we join in this era of God's redeeming work in this world as we take Christ within us and through us into the world of ugliness and injustice that we have around us. Here's a couple of examples. Uh, in Ghana, we partner um, with uh, Terry and Amy Ruff and Team Expansion. They work among uh, rural and tribal Muslims in Ghana, and they use these mobile phone mini SD chips in a lot of times tribes that are, with, uh, that are completely illiterate, and they take the oral stories of Jesus into these tribes in their uh, native languages so that these these tribes can hear the good news of Jesus in their respective language. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. In northern India, Northern India Christian Mission uh, is one of our partners, and it, one of their outreaches is serving a leper community. Uh, this staff for, at Northern India Christian Mission take food and medicine and worship and hope to a people group that society has cast aside. These Christ followers go to this place with their resources, their hope, and their love. And beyond that, they also provide a physical presence to people who have been alienated by the rest of the world around them. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. In Nairobi, Kenya, in the slums there, it's approximated that three million out of the five million people in Nairobi live in slums, which um, is a, a system, a, a area of just crippling poverty. And there, um, in North, in uh, Nairobi, we partner with a group called Missions of Hope, who take education, faith, and nu nutrition, and job training to ten thousand uh, children and young adults. And their goal is to not um, just to. to provide food, but through investment in the children, they seek to transform the individual lives of these children and ultimately their communities. The Jesus sacrifice, Jesus sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading, reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. In Cambodia, in Burma, and Thailand, we partner with an organization called Rafa House, where they have houses set up here. And last year, I got to go with a small college team to Cambodia and, and get to learn about this organization who does an amazing work amongst these um, people who've seen the, some of the absolute worst that humanity has to offer, these victims who have, of human trafficking. And these people are at Rafa House have counselors, they have teachers, and they have a safe and secure place where they can help restore and reestablish hope and value into the lives of these young girls and help them planning, put the pieces back together of their lives so that they have a hope and a future. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and bring more and more of heaven and earth 
together. In Swaziland, we partner with a group called One Child Matters that take food and nutrition and medical assistance to children with HIV and children who've been orphaned by losing their parents to HIV. Again, Jesus' sacrifice keeps spreading and spreading and it reunites more and more of heaven and earth when Jesus and his church unified around the idea that Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We knock down the gates of Hades. Locally, Habitat for Humanity assists the working poor here in our community to attain affordable housing and give them a hand up out of the cycle of poverty. And just in the past three years, we've co-sponsored two single moms who are moving forward in providing for their families as they become self-sufficient. We've also had two women's builds that have assisted two other families. Shout out to all the Sherwood Oaks ladies out there building homes and knocking on the gates of hell. Way to go. Um, We... um, yeah, you can applaud that. Absolutely. That's great. Um, we, we partner with groups like Wheeler Mission who have outreach to substance abuse and, and retraining for people who are coming out dealing with homelessness and dealing with um, severe addiction problems. The Hannah House that assists single moms to, keep, to help moms keep and care for their children. Boys and Girls uh, Club, Big Brothers, Big Sisters that provide mentoring for kids who need a positive influence. Monroe County United Ministries, they provide high quality childcare and emergency food relief for families among other great services for those who are working to better their lives and provide for their children. We get to do a lot of amazing things when we come together unified in our understanding of the goodness of who Jesus is and what it means for our lives and we, we open our hearts to be transformed by him. We started this, this year um, in, in 2016 with a sermon series called On Target where we focused uh, on how the church can be active with these agencies and many in this congregation have done just that. We've received feedback from some of these agencies about the swell of volunteers they have got received from Sherwood Oaks who wanna step in and help assist in the mission and visions they have to bring hope and light into the different areas and different arenas in which they work. And that is awesome. And we want to continue to see that happen. Is there something this morning that you've been feeling pulled to, but you've been putting off? The yes to love tag that we use to communicate our mission is a way of affirming our desire to join the outward call of Christ. We are not a fortress interested in building up walls where we are content in condemning this world and its ways and arrogantly preaching that it should get its act together and just become more like us. We get together, we go toward the mess and the darkness, and we carry the love of Christ with us because we know that he is able to do immeasurably immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. And I just wanna be clear this morning that this is not a message um, about saving ourselves through kingdom work. Um, Our sin, uh, God has dealt through, in Jesus, God has dealt with that. And Paul writes it this way to the church at Ephesus. He says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. But Paul goes on, with his point in this. And he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You were created for some good work in this world. Are you walking in it? Could it be that your role in fulfilling Jesus' vision of his people by invading the gates of hell and combating the ugliness and injustice and brokenness that we see in this world lies in stepping into and finding that good work that God has prepared you to do in advance? 
Maybe there's something new for you to chase after, or maybe it's waking up to a person or people he already has in your life and taking on a new perspective and energy and how you can serve and love them. So this morning, here's a challenge um, uh, as we prepare to leave. At the end of your rows, there are these little cards. Uh, You're free to grab one of those and pass them down, or if you don't get one, you can grab one maybe uh, on the way out. And um, this is just a reminder. So here's the challenge. This week, would you consider putting this someplace that you'll see it every day? Um, On the back of the card is written is the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus told his disciples, uh, that Jesus instructs uh, for us who are unified in our our belief in who he is um, to pray together. And would you for a week start every day with this prayer um, so that we can join our hearts and minds back to the foremost part of this prayer that, that Jesus directed where he said, Holy Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.